Good morning. I too welcome you to this morning service and uh, greet you in Jesus' name. So, about five weeks ago, I uh, when I had the topic here this morning. Well, what did I preach about? Remember? I know that's that's a long time ago and. Very understandable if you don't, but just maybe you might. All right, non-resistance. Remember that? Anyway, that particular topic uh, spawned a number of questions and even a comment that um, there was way too many loose ends left that morning, and there was. I was pushed for time, and we just skipped stuff and made it work in the time frame that's expected. And um, so I thought, well, you know, maybe I should just slow this thing down just a little bit. And, and there was there was something that that uh, aided me in that decision, which I'll get to a little later here. And so, if you feel like this non-resistance thing is like old hat and a bore, I got it. Forgive me. But um, if you feel like um, a little extra teaching is in order, why uh, stick around for the next few minutes, and uh, we'll uh, we'll we'll launch into this. So, if you remember the last time, I um, I somewhat gave some some reasons. I think it's it's maybe a, a good topic to look at occasionally, and I even insinuated that I couldn't really remember ever hearing a sermon here on non-resistance necessarily. Not saying that it didn't happen, but I just couldn't remember it. And um, and so we 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 went through um, some of the some of the um, fundamentals of why we believe this doctrine to be a biblical doctrine. We we looked at um, some of the ways this works out in our in our everyday life, and um, and we specifically looked at the of the thing of jury duty. Remember that we spent a little time on that uh, because of some issues here in our church, some some people getting called up for that, and then we we rounded it out with an illustration or an example of a, of a man in in the uh, in the um, army camps in World War One and some of the things he faced and some of the things that came to the fore. So that's a little bit of a, of a summary of the last time. And without further ado, I'm going to launch into this because I just get this strange feeling. Maybe I got a little too much material again this time, and we're going to we're going to keep this within the confines. So we're going to launch into this kind of um, uh, unceremoniously. And uh, I want to I want to go back and pick up on a few more um, a few more thoughts or arguments given against what we call this doctrine of non-resistance and and some reasons that are often given for it not being a legitimate doctrine to be observed today, all right? We believe it is, but there are many Christians that don't believe that, okay? So why this huge, why, why, these, why this 180 in this doctrine? In other words, if you go out here in any given evangelical church, you would find there is many doctrines that we could agree on to a greater or lesser degree. Now, now there's a very great Calvinistic influence in many churches where we'd, we'd have some issue, but fundamentally we would find a, a way to agree on some very basic Christian doctrines. But on this one, we probably couldn't be further apart, okay? So why is that? Well, I, I'm going to give you uh, some of the some of the reasons or arguments that you would likely hear from someone like that. And this again is in no way to um, put others down. I'm just trying to help you to have a reason for the hope that is within you. Okay, Peter says that's what we're supposed to have. We should be able to have an answer for people when they when they um, want to talk about these things. So. So I want to I want to just address a few of these and then uh, and then get into a few other things too. So an, an argument you will often hear is that God is an unchanging God. He never changes, never has, never will. That's true. God actually commanded warfare in the Old Testament, and furthermore, David, a man after God's own heart, and that's exact. That's right from Scripture. Was a man that fought many wars. He killed many people. Now, how could a God like that change his mind and suddenly in, in this era, um, the New Testament era, he expects something quite the opposite? And, and, and so the argument goes, it doesn't stack. It doesn't stack. Well, 
Let's, let's just read a few verses here. I'm going to quote a few verses, and then we're going to, we're going to turn to some, some Bible verses here. And I'm just going to read to you. Here's some very common verses that are cited. Second uh, Samuel 22.35, this is David speaking here, and he says, He teaches, or God teaches my hands to war, so that a bow of steel is broken by mine arms. Psalm 144.1, Blessed be the Lord God my strength, which teaches my hands to war and my fingers to fight. And you will often see this, these verses show up in, uh, in arguments that military participation, that sort of thing, is, um, is certainly approved of the Lord, because after all, that's what David was, was, uh, was pointing to. But I want to ask you something. Think through this. Is the legacy that David left as a man after God's own heart, was that based on the fact that he was a man of war? Well, I'll turn with me to uh, 1 Samuel 13, 13. And if you're one given to writing in your Bible, I would just tell you to underline these some of these verses because they're, they're good to be able to reference quickly if, uh, if the need ever arises. So if you remember, Saul is made king. And um, and he has this issue that he he's waiting on Samuel to come and offer a sacrifice. Samuel's not showing up. The Philistine army's coming, and Saul's getting scared. At least he says he is, and he probably was. And so he finally says, after he waits seven days, he said, bring me the sacrifice. I'm just going to do it myself. And that was not. He had overstepped his uh, realm of... Um, of duties. He was not to act, he was not to sacrifice that sacrifice. And Samuel had told him to wait till I come and then you can sacrifice. Alright, so, so, so he goes ahead and does this. And, um, Samuel comes and uh, in verse 11 of, of 1 Samuel 13, he says, what hast thou done? And Saul said, because I saw the people were scattered. From me, and that thou camest not within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered themselves again together at Michmash, therefore I said the Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord, and so I forced myself therefore, and I offered a burnt offering. Now look at Samuel's words here. And Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought him a man after his own heart. And that's referring to David. And the Lord has commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. Now I'm going to ask for your input here. From those verses... Why was Saul not a man after God's own heart? And why was David a man after God's own heart? Can you quickly deduct from those verses what the key difference was? I know this is a Sunday school, but you're allowed to talk. Obedience. Obedience. It was simple obedience. He said, you did not keep the command of the Lord, but this man after my own heart is going to be one that does so. If you would go to Acts 13, and I'm not going to take the time to turn there, but if you would, this is Stephen giving a history lesson to the uh, to his persecutors. And I'm going to read verses 21 and 22 out of that chapter. And afterward they desired a king, and God gave unto them Saul, the son of Sis, a man after a man of the tribe of ben- Benjamin by the space of forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king. To whom also gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, and here's why he was, which shall fulfill my will. All right? Now this principle that a man after God's own heart is an obedient person has not changed. That has never changed. From the Old Testament to the New, it still stays. You want to be a man after God's own heart, that's how we, that's how we are one. Now, Remember with me that in, in, uh, when David got this idea that he should build the temple, he told Nathan about his idea, and Nathan said, that's a good idea, go ahead and do it. That very night, God came to Nathan and said, I don't want David to build this, this temple, because man, and I'm going to read you what he said. Thou, hast, thou shalt not build an house for my name, because thou hast been a man of war and hast shed blood. Okay? 
So even though David was obedient, he was. He had shed blood according to God's will many times, and, and at times according to God's direct command. God still was dismayed, quote, quote, okay, with the fact that so much blood had been spilled. And he said, when my house is built, I want it to be built in a time of peace by a man who has not shed blood, and that person will be Solomon, your son. And in the, in the case of Solomon, he, he reigned during probably the most peaceful era of the, of the Israel, the kingdom of Israel there. And um, at that time, the, that, um, that house was built. There's many examples of God explicitly commanding the killing of people in the Old Testament. We won't cite any more, but remember, God was working with a specific, identifiable, earthly kingdom with very defined geographical boundaries and a very physical place. And therefore, the commandment often was to execute judgment in a physical way. And so thus, the uh, the fighting and the killing and on and on that you have in the Old Testament. And I'll tell you, sometimes it's kind of depressing to read through the Old Testament. Some of the things that happened, I, I just cringe. But, you know, th- this was a different day, a different era, and that, that was God's command, and it, and it happened. Now turn with me to, to Luke 17, and we're now in uh, in a different era. The, we have Jesus teaching um, different things here. And he has, he has something to say in Luke 17 and verse 20. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. All right? So, so Jesus is making a very clear delineation between the Old Testament and New Testament kingdoms. He said, you used to be able to have boundaries and stuff, but this new kingdom that's coming along is not going to be with observation. You won't be able to say, now there is the kingdom of God in this geographical boundary because it's within you. And because it's within you, it's going to be in China, it's going to be in the U.S., it's going to be in Argentina, it's going to be in Cuba, it's going to be everywhere that there is a person that the Holy Spirit of God is living within them. And so thus, Paul writes in Ephesians 6.12, he said, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Because the kingdom of God is not observed, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But we wrestle against principalities and powers, against kingdoms and rulers of the darkness of the age and spiritual wickedness in high places. I'm not sure if I quoted that exactly right. But, but Paul lays it out. It's a spiritual battle. We're fighting very, very, on very, very different terms in a very, very different way. So back to this thing of God being unchanging. As I mentioned before, he still wants men after his own heart that are, is willing to do as he says. And remember, that's not legalism. Many times that gets dubbed as, oh, you're, you're legalistic. You have a legalistic religion. No, that's not legalism because in Matthew 7, when Jesus gave that very familiar parable of the wise and foolish man, he said, those that hear my words and do them, they're wise people. Those that hear my words and they don't do them, they're foolish people. And I, I'm, I'm interested that when Samuel came to Saul and scolded him and rebuked him for offering that sacrifice, did you catch what he said? Samuel said to Saul, thou hast done foolishly. You have done foolishly that thou hast not, the, the, thou hast not kept the command of the Lord thy God which he commanded thee. Now one other thing just to think about here quickly um, this isn't necessarily a Bible verse I can turn to, but it certainly makes sense as one thinks about it. So think about you as an earthly father. Uh, you have children, if you're a father. It's obviously that's the case. And let's just say that um, your son comes to you and he says, I want to go to town today. And you say, sure, go to town. And then a week later, he comes to you and he says, I want to go to town today. And you say, no, no, I don't, I don't want you to go to town today. Now, what should he do? You, you left him go to town last week. But now you're saying this week he can't go to town. 
Now, does that make you um, a, a person that uh, cannot be trusted? You have somehow, you're a completely different person. You have changed your mind in a way you shouldn't have changed your mind. No. Likely you have a good reason that you don't want him to go to town, whether he understands that or not. All right? And because he is your son, he is under obligation to obey you. At least he should, whether he gets it or not. And honestly, I hope you wouldn't do this, but you wouldn't even have to have a good reason. You could just say, well, I don't want you to go to town today. And, and if everything's functioning well at home, um, the, the, the son should, should trust you enough that that's sufficient. Um, now, God's a much bigger God, and God just doesn't do things willy-nilly, and he does have a plan. My point is, God has every reason to say in the Old Testament, in this time, my people are going to do it this way. But now this is a different time, and we're going to do it this way. All right? Does that make sense? We're still expected to obey God. You know, Saul did not kill the king there when he went after the, the Amalekites, and he saved the sheep and the cattle, I believe. And he disobeyed. He did. He was commanded to kill, and he disobeyed. And, of course, we know how that all turned out. Today, it is quite the opposite. I believe if we know, um, if we understand what God expects of us, and we disobey that, we are equally in violation, I would say. All right, let's move on to another one. Another argument that you will often hear, and it, it's, it's, it seems reasonable at first. What do we do with a centurion in Luke 7? They had the sixth servant, and he comes to Jesus, and he said, Jesus, I want you to heal my servant. And, uh, and um, Jesus, but I, I, if I recall the story correctly, he said, I, you don't need to come to my house. He said, you can do it right here. He said, I understand what it is to be like a man that's in authority. I say to people, do this and do that, and they do it. And he said, um, just say the word and, and heal my servant right from here. And Jesus commended this man, and he said, I have not found such a great faith. No, not in Israel. Not even among you Jewish religious people have I found faith this great. And then you know the story of Cornelius. It says that he's a man that prayed often. He gave alms, and he was a just and devout man. And it said that he was a, a centurion of the band of Italians, I, I do believe it says. Well, what about these people? Well, there's a couple things we need to think about. Remember that the New Testament pages were written in a very transitory, transitional period. So things were changing, and they didn't change in a flash. They, they, they were changing at the pace that God wished them to change, but there was things that, that, yeah, there was just a change taking place. And in both instances, the, the instruction and the subject matter addressed in the, in the Holy Scriptures here is not about whether or not you should be a centurion. It, it's all about a sick servant and great faith in the centurion. That, that's, the, that's the story. And in the case of Cornelius, it is again a story of, um, of a man that had great faith and he's praying to God. God's hearing his prayer and he, and he sends Peter and Peter comes and baptizes him. And you know the story from there. That the, in neither, in neither situation is the, the point of the story something to do with whether or not these men should have been centurions. We also have another story in Luke 7. We have a man called Simon, who Jesus went to his house one day for dinner, and uh, he came in there, and, and Simon should have washed his feet and had done some things, gave him a kiss and stuff, and he didn't do it, but he gave him dinner there. And, and at some point, a sinful woman came in, and if you remember, she had a, a box of ointment, and she broke that thing, and she put it on Jesus' feet. And Simon said to himself, if Jesus knew what kind of a woman that was, He'd have a few words for her. And, of course, Jesus knew what Simon was thinking, and he said, Simon, I have somewhat to say to thee. That's how the, the King James puts it. And he launches into this thing that, you know, Simon, this, this, this woman here has done a lot that she needs to be forgiven of. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. I'm going to forgive her. 
you haven't done so much, and so thus your love for me isn't as great for me as what hers is. I'm condensing this story. In that story, now it's it's often assumed that this this woman was likely a prostitute. That was likely her her sinful condition, and thus why Simon was so aghast at what had happened here. Jesus did not say to the woman, "Thou shalt not be a prostitute again." He didn't say that. Now, are we supposed to assume she went back out on the streets and began prostituting? We rather assume she didn't. However, it's not written that she shouldn't have, that that Jesus said she shouldn't have. You, You get my connection. Just because Jesus didn't specifically say to the to the um, centurion or to uh, or Peter to Cornelius that you shall quit being a centurion in the Roman army does not necessarily mean that the people didn't at some point in their life in the future cease to do that. We we don't know the answer to that. But it wouldn't be unreasonable to think that that they did not, or that they did change, have a change of occupation. I want to read a, a verse here from Second um, Corinthians sixteen nine. This is um, uh, God talking to the prophet to King Asa, and he says like this: For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward Him. Now, what does it mean to have a perfect heart? Does that mean that it is absolutely, you got everything down, you're doing everything, you're just batting a hundred? I mean, that's, that's where you're at. Well, I guess it could mean that, but there's very few of us get to that point, if any of us do, right? A perfect heart is a person that is, is obeying God, he is walking with God, he is doing the best he knows with the help that God gives him, to live in a way that God can bless his life. That's a perfect man. God would never hold anybody accountable for something they do not know. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm confident of that. And here's why I am. If you remember with me, Paul says, and I should look this scripture up, but I didn't, but it's in there. It's in the Bible. Trust me, it is. That, um, he said, when I persecuted the church, he said, I did that in good conscience. Well, that was a horrible thing. He, 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 he was party to Stone and Stephen. It said that he was going around the houses grabbing men, women, and children out and hauling them off to Jerusalem, putting them in jail. But he, he, he said, I did that in good conscience. Alright? But now whenever God enlightened Paul further, Paul changed. He, he, he retained his good conscience. Now what would have happened if Paul wouldn't have changed there on the road to Damascus? What if he, what if he wouldn't have changed? He would have lost his good conscience, right? And so thus, I, I, I say that to say this. You, you and, and I've heard this, I've had it put directly to me in this many words. I've had people tell me directly. I know. I know factually. I've been in the military. I know there are Christians in the military. I'm not going to dispute that. There may well be. There may well be. Uh, what I am going to say is, though, that I do not believe that I could in good conscience do such a thing. All right? That's, that's what I believe. The more pressing question to me this morning is not to try to delineate whether there's Christians in the military. Let's not even go there. Let's not even try to figure that out. Rather, let's try to figure out how can I have a more perfect heart toward God? What am I reading here in the Bible that I'm just totally missing? And I read it over and over and over and over. And God's like, when's he ever going to get that? And I just miss it. And I miss it. And I miss it. And then suddenly it comes on one day. I'm like, how did I miss that all these years? Well, suddenly if I want to retain my perfect heart, i got to start obeying something I haven't done here heretofore, right? Argument number three. What about Romans 13? Ministers of God. Um, the powers that be are ordained of God. What do you do with that? Well, again, I just want to say, suffice it to say that this chapter is instruction to us as saints not to resist the government that is there, but to obey them to the, to the degree that we conscientiously can. It is no call to participate in. It is a call to obey as we can. That's the only commentary there. And if we go back to Daniel, there's two verses in Daniel that clearly tell us that God chooses leaders among the basest of men. 
Do you know what that word basest means? The lowest, the most disgusting. Has there been anything about the Biden administration that has disgusted you here in the last two years? Probably if we're all honest, we'd say it is somewhat disgusting. There's been things that from a Christian viewpoint are disgusting. And you say, how can it be? I just want you to remember that that as hard as it is for us to understand this at times, President Biden is there because God wants him there. He picked among, dare I dare say it, the basest of men and put him there. And he's, he's making things happen that I don't understand why God wants this all to happen, but he wants it to happen, right? We have to conclude that. And so I, I fear that there has been, um, there has been, um, much futile effort expended by Christians to clean up the government. And I'll have to say that it's been pretty much a miserable failure for, for the most part. Now I just want to just, ask this question yet. Why is this doctrine of non-resistance held by such a minority of Christians in the world today that we live? Why is that? Well, I think, number one, it doesn't follow the common sense. And I, and I had that, I well remember a conversation I had with a man a few years ago, and he said, it was, it was along this line of, of, of non-resistance. And when he found out my position, he said, but we live in the real world. We live in the real world. Yeah, we do. We do live in the real world, don't we? doesn't follow common sense. And also, the greater part of nominal Christianity has long abandoned this doctrine because a lie, in my opinion, you just put it out there, maybe I shouldn't, maybe a lie is too, too strong. A misinterpretation, a misinterpretation was propagated many, many, many years ago by a man that Davy mentioned on Wednesday night by the name of Augustine, and that eventually became the accepted truth. And it was picked up by men like Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, and many, many others. And it has been Christian dogma for ages that this is how it is. But you know, there's always been that pilgrim church through the ages, the Lollers, the Donatists, the Waldensians, the Anabaptists, and I'm sure many others that have said, no, no, you know, we really believe that the Sermon on the Mount is, is written for us and it just means what it says. So that's what we're going to do. So did you ever hear this thing that if a lie is repeated often enough, it, it eventually will become the truth? Well, that's, that's somewhat what has happened in this particular, um, in this particular doctrine. And so there are men that I will say that are, I don't know if I'd call them even willingly deceived. They simply, um, you know, when people you admire tell you something, and you admire them and you, and you, and you esteem them as people of knowledge and, and so on, you just expect what they say is true. And that's why Peter warns us, uh, one and read it this morning, about the false prophets with feigned words that will rise up and deceive their millions. And that's what has happened, unfortunately. All right, let's look uh, now, let's just pivot a little bit, and let's look at some situations, some real-life situations that are closely related to this particular doctrine and that influence our position on uh, on uh, certain things. Now, somebody, and I'm not sure who it was, said, now you never did tell us what we're supposed to do whenever we're confronted with this thing where we're supposed to say the Pledge of Allegiance and, and uh, you know, we're in the situation or or the national anthem is sung or something like that. Now, what what is our response to something like that? Well, I, I would say this offhand, just just broadly speaking, all right? Broadly speaking, if we generally avoid going to places that are likely questionable in the first place, we, we won't encounter this problem very much, okay? But if we insist on going to places that are likely questionable in the same first place, um, you will encounter it, and you probably won't pass the test very long. So that would be my first point. Avoid going places where this likely this thing would likely happen. We probably don't belong there. As a matter of fact, I would say that this was a passive contributing factor for the interest in private Christian day schools back in the 50s and 60s, or in that time frame. You know, uh, at that time... Um, 
People went to school and they were expected to say the Pledge of Allegiance every morning, and that was a problem. However, I would say in today's world, um, likely a public school would be less of a problem than a private Christian school. That would be my guess. I'm not sure that I, I can say that with total authority, but, but likely. But what if we are someplace legitimate and something spontaneously occurs? Uh, sometimes, you know, farm shows, this kind of thing, those things can happen. Well, I would just say this. When the Pledge of Allegiance is said and you find yourself there, stand. Everybody will stand. Just stand and stand there. And, um, you know, with as much respect as you can, wait till the operation is over and then, and then seat yourself again. And if uh, somebody questions you about that, well, then you have an opportunity to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. You can do that. That's, um, that, um, and be prepared to do that. We should maybe be thinking about those things ahead of time. Beyond that, um, that's the general principle I would give. Uh, be respectful. But I think if you have the Holy Spirit living within you, you'll probably be able to differentiate when, when the line has gone too far. And I probably should stop here. I think, I think it's, it's hard to parse out all the various specifics that a person might encounter. But I would say in general, that's what a person should do. I was also, um, um, uh, questioning about, uh, this conceal and carry permits that I mentioned the last time that I'm somewhat dismayed the, um, at the um, um, resistance that I feel at Bible school, to be honest with you, sometimes, of, um, of well, you know, it's okay to have a concealed carry permit. And generally, the, the argument is this, that that is the easiest way to obtain a legitimate permit to carry a sidearm and throw it in your glove box. You'll carry it around easily if you have a concealed carry permit. Now, I'm not up on gun laws, so I can't speak to that. I did a quick search on gun laws um, in preparation for this, and it's way more than I want to read, and I don't want to even get a gun, so I don't care. But what I could, from what I could figure out, and this somewhat surprised me, the majority of states, like 30-some states, there is no permit actually required to, ha- to even carry a handgun. And uh, the great state of Iowa would be one of those. So, Curtis, you can get a handgun if you if you wish. But up up here in Minnesota, we got to get a permit. Um, anyway, but but I I just ask you this: the Bible tells us to be concerned and abstain from the appearance of evil. Now, you may well just get a a, a concealed carry permit because it's an easy way to obtain the right to carry your your pistol in your glove box to kill some snake somewhere you might encounter. I always thought a hoe would be a better option anyway, but I guess they don't fit in a glove box. Um, But what about the appearance of evil? 99% of people that buy a concealed carry permit are not buying it to put it in the glove box and kill snakes. That's not why they're buying it. They're buying it there because they want to be ready in the event that somebody threatens them. We we know that. Now, what what dismays me the most is this is probably where our evangelical friends and us probably part ways the most. It's almost unbelievable the amount of of, um, interest in that arena of Christians on maintaining the right to carry a firearm. It, it, it's pretty unbelievable. But, you know, I, I, I'll leave it at that. Does anybody get the lifelines? Okay, one person. In the July-August issue, I couldn't believe it when I was, I was preparing for this message, and I, I just literally couldn't believe it when I opened this issue. When I, and then there was a, an, an article in here called Guns or Frying Pans, Okay. And it's too long to read, and I probably should have made a copy for everybody to read because it's just so good. But it, it, it's it's two scenarios, two different situations, but in both situations, it is an escaped prisoner that's on the loose, and the neighborhoods are on high alert. You know, we got this dangerous criminal on the loose. In the one case, there is a primitive Baptist couple that the 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 escaped inmate comes in, holds the the uh, man at gunpoint, 
And before anything bad could happen, the wife there in the situation, who was making breakfast, she 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 demanded that that criminal put his 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 gun on the sofa. She said, "I'm sure you're hungry, and we're just about to eat breakfast. How would you like your eggs fixed?" And so he did that. He followed her instructions, laid his gun down. Long story short, they ended up having breakfast together. However, um, somebody had reported seeing this person go into their house, reported it to the police. Within minutes, the police are in the driveway. And this man said, they're going to kill me. I know they're going to kill me. And again, uh, Grandma to the rescue, she says, no, they're not going to kill you. So she goes out on the porch, and there they are with long arms and, you know, how they do, you know, ducking around, ready for this criminal to come out. And she said, everybody put their, their, their guns away. She said, there is no guns allowed on this premise. And she said, besides that, this man is, needs to finish his breakfast. And as soon as he's done with breakfast, he'll be out. And there, there'll be no, no need for guns. And that's exactly what happened. He finished his breakfast, and he went out, and he was arrested, taken to prison. The, the amazing part of that story is he eventually, through the influence of, these, of this couple, became a Christian. That's the amazing part of that story. Now, there's another story, same scenario, criminals on the loose, and we have a Christian that made the, the, um, the decision to arm himself. And so he's working with, with his gun in, in his, uh, in his uh, pants there. And sure enough, don't you know, the criminals came out. And so he opens fire and misses both of them, but they didn't miss him. He dies, all right? Long story again, but... His wife ends, ends up a wreck because of what she had, what she had witnessed. He's killed and no good came of the story. Okay. The criminal had the upper hand. Now you could say, well, what about Sasha Krause? What would happen if she'd have been armed? You could say, what about the teacher at Nickel Mines? What would have happened if she, if he or she would have been armed? Well, folks, we don't know the answer to that. And they're hypotheticals. What I can tell you is, this is a story that tells me that God's way does work. It works. And we need to understand that. And, yeah, remember that story the next time some criminals on the loose will be ready to fix some breakfast. Uh, that, that could be a good thing for us. You know, in the, in the event of, like, say, Sasha Krauss and, and the nickel mine story, the magnitude of the testimony that was carried from those things resonated around the world. And any time you have somebody that takes out a criminal with a gun, it might make the note local headlines. Might. The testimony is unbelievable. Bad things do happen to good people, but it is never outside of the will of God. Never. Okay. Let's quickly hit, what about labor unions? Why don't we participate in labor unions? I'll just say labor unions probably had a worthy beginning. They, they, were, they tried to acquire better working conditions and wages for truly belligerent companies. However, let's just go ahead and, and admit it that as labor unions have evolved, they have turned into something a little bit different. And even no matter what era of time you're talking about, there was always at least passive force needed to obtain the, the, the desired objectives. And if demands are not met, they will strike, they will picket, uh, this, that, and the other thing. And how does a person square that with a Bible command that servants are to obey their masters? How's that square? Fortunately, in our, in our day, if you don't like your job, you can quit and get another one. It's pretty easy. It's, it's largely based on the Western ideology of the rights of an individual. And there's no way we as Christians can condone the use of force in any situation, picketing, strikes, etc. I think that's an easy one to get. I'm going to leave that one. Closer home, there is a myriad of mundane issues that affect us day by day. How do I respond if somebody does not pay a bill? He owes me money. He just does. Does it make a difference if it's $10, $100, $1,000, $10,000? $100, does that make a difference? I know a person 
that sold his um, sold his house on a contract for deed to a Mennonite, and he defaulted. He just quit paying his just quit paying. That was it. The man chose the right path. He just that was it. He was out his hundred thousand dollars or whatever it was. Now that's that's a that that's truly a testimony of a man. And, and I'll tell you this, I know this person pretty personally, but I did not find that out through him. I found that out from another person. See, he took the spoiling of his goods graciously. What if we have rental properties and we want the tenant to move and he just won't move? We want him to move. He won't go. Well, there's ways we can handle that to strong arm him out of there. But again, it's not really Christian. What if somebody has just done us a little bit unjustly? Can we just let that slide? You know, if there's something on sale and, uh, you know, we get gypped out of a few cents or a few dollars. To me, the good testimony is let it go. Just let it go. All right. How are we going to maintain a strong individual and group conscience on this matter? Number one. This will never happen if we have a lethargic, stagnant relationship with Christ. It just won't. To exercise this doctrine in a way that is Christ-like, it will take a power beyond you and beyond me. It won't happen all by itself. We need to be partakers of the divine nature if this is going to happen. We will lose this doctrine if we don't consistently teach, promote, and practice it. There's ways that you can probably practice non-resistance this week if you look for them. And it is unlikely that it will continue if we regularly imbibe worldly news, movies, and other powerful satanic influences of our age. We will not be non-resistant people very long at all if we insist on watching movies. If we insist on on, um, watching Fox News on a regular basis. I just doubt we're going to maintain it very long. Now I didn't bring it up. Is there a book laying there? Underneath the bench? Okay. It was in my way. I was at the Minister Study Week um, last fall, and there's some history buffs there in that valley that when it's at Pike Church, they say, well, there's there's a bunch of books down there we're giving away. You can just go down and have them. There's maybe 10% of us that will make our way down there, and we'll start rooting through it and ratting out some books. And There was one here called The Mennonite Church in the Second World War by Guy Hirschberger. I don't know if anybody's ever read that one or not, but I was like, well, that looks like an interesting read. I'm interested in World War II stuff. And so I brought it home, and I read it. It's a good book. The man put it together. Um, each chapter is a standalone chapter, so you can kind of just pick it up and read what you're interested in and lay it aside, and you didn't miss anything. So I didn't read it word for word, but I did read some of it in here. And there's one chapter in here called The Response to the Draft is what it's called. And what Guy does is he, he goes through and he, he just gets down to the statistics of how did the church fare as far as, as their response to the draft? How did people respond to that? And there's some very, very interesting uh, things showed up here in this. And... Um, because we don't have a lot of time, I'm not going to go into a lot of it. But here, here's some things that, that I want to tell you. Only, well, I shouldn't say only, but of all the, all, of all the people that were drafted out of the Mennonite church, and this is using very broad terms, I shouldn't even say Mennonite, this included Church of the Brethren, Brethren in Christ, Hutterites, the broad scope of Anabaptists. Roughly 40% accepted military service, even though it was relatively easy not to. 40% accepted. Now, of that 40%, 80% were rated as their pastors as either in poor standing with their church or as backsliders. Okay? Now, you do what you will with that language, but I basically say they weren't Christians. All right? Didn't seem like they were very, very hot spiritually. Regrettably, 11% were considered in good standing with their church. 
Okay, about 11%. Now there were some other in interesting things. Education played a factor. If you, if you were a high schooler, you were less likely, you were more likely to join the military than if you had less than high school or you had college. I thought that was interesting. Occupation made a difference. If you came from a farming background, you were more likely to register as a CEO than if you came from a non-farming background. Age made a difference. The younger you were, the less likely you were to, uh, or the more likely you were to join the military rather than go to C CPS camps. Other influencing factors for accepting military service, I'm just going to bump through these real quick. Number one, and this is shameful, the minister himself was not thoroughly committed to the principle of non-resistance. Now, how's that? If the minister is not committed, well, you can't really expect anybody else to be. The influence of associates in work and otherwise, friends, etc. Negative influence from family. If a family scoffed the church in her positions, it was highly unlikely that, um, that the children were going to uh, register COs. Lack of teaching on the subject. And then here's one that's interesting. Finances. And the book does not say whether you're poor or rich made any difference, but apparently finances made a difference. He missed that part, I guess. School influences. Those with higher high school education did poorer than those that had less than that or more than that, interestingly enough. And I would say in today's world, we could probably add the influence of the powerful World Wide Web would certainly, certainly play a, a, a role in that, I'm sure. Now, here's something I want to show you real quick. I ran across this whenever I was uh, teaching the non-resistance class at uh, Maranatha a few years ago. But I found out that that particular chart is in this book. I'm not sure if you can read that or not, but what it is, is this man went through all the different, uh, all the different conferences and, um, and um, Mennonites, etc. 1A stands for active military. 1AO stands for non-combatant military. IVE stands for um, uh, CO status. Now, if you look through there, Old Order Mennonites had nobody that accepted military 100% CO. Reformed Mennonites, same thing. Old Order Amish, and you can, I'm not going to read it all to you, but as you look through there, this number grows, that number shrinks. Do you get to the Mennonite Brethren in Christ, you have 78% of the people, or the young men, that were accepting full-blown military service, you have 16% that were going into non-combatant service, and you have a whopping 4.8 that accepted CO status. Now you go down to the uh, to the bottom chart, and this is the the old Mennonite. And I should just point out the old Mennonite church there under conservative Amish Mennonite. That would be us. That would be our people. All right. That would be who we are. There we had 30 percent that accepted military service. And we had 60% that went into the COs, 10% non-combatant. But 30%, that's a pretty significant number. Okay, so you take that old Mennonite and then you break that down in by conference. You have the Washington Franklin County Conference that had zero in the combatant. And then again, it, it just goes right up through to you get to southwestern Pennsylvania. You had a full 50% of the men that joined the military. Now, as you, as you look through that, that maybe doesn't mean anything to you. Uh, just one irony here I want to point out. How about the defenseless Mennonites? Defenseless Mennonites, 54% in the military, and their name is the defenseless Mennonites? So, 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 let, so we'll make this real quick. Where I read this, the point that was being, that was being made by the author is... At the top, the Old Order Mennonites, the Reformed Mennonites, had the most commitment to nonconformity in life in general. All right, very identifiable. Took a very, a very strong position on being nonconformed to the world. They had the strongest showing for participation in the COs. 
you come down to the Mennonite brother in Christ, almost no, if any, commitment to nonconformity in life. And what do we have? 80% almost participating in the military. And the same thing can be said from Washington Franklin down to southwest Pennsylvania. You know, there's some, there's some things in there that make you wonder. Lancaster Conference, they were certainly committed to, uh, to uh, nonconformity. I know that. Uh, however, 29% chose military service. I, I will say this. Numbers have to play a difference here. I mean, Lancaster Conference at that point was probably 13,000 members. That's a lot of people. And so, you know, there's that factor you gotta, you got to play into the thing, too. But anyway, I, I show you that to just say this. I think the man made a legitimate point, uh, the man that put that chart together or delineated that. You know, when I as a person am willing to identify in a very personal way on a daily basis that I don't belong to this world system, that's not where I am. This world is not my home. When the big tests come, I am much, much more likely to pass that because I have lived that on a daily basis. But if I am ho-hum, I don't care who I identify with, I'm sloppy with my speech, I'll cheat where I can, I don't really care, I'm here, i got a slovenly attitude. Guess what? When the big tests come, that's exactly where you'll be. You'll be at a place that you wish you weren't or you shouldn't be. I have to conclude. The burning question is this. Have you and I been transformed? Have we? Has the spirit in me that works in me, does it allow me to walk two miles when I'm only compelled to go one today? Is that the person I am? Do I take joyfully the spoiling of my goods today? Can I easily forgive my enemies today? Can I feed them when they're hungry? Can I release my brother of his offenses to me? Does that describe me? If it does... Likely you're going to do just okay on this doctrine of non-resistance. If your answer to those questions is no, likely you won't. May God help us to the sin.